Hi, and welcome to this 72 podcast. I am excited to have you here, and I'm also excited to share the message that I have for you. The title of today's message is called The Separation of Church and Life. We live our lives like leftovers in the fridge. In this container, I have my food from yesterday. In this container, I have my food from last week. In the very, very back, we all have that forgotten box that is about to become sentient, grow legs, and walk out of the icy prison we have sentenced it to for at least three months. We love containers. There is a whole store dedicated just to containers. This isn't a new idea. The Container Store was founded in 1978. It is still going. It's the idea of organization. We want everything to be in its own place. There are even YouTubers completely dedicated to this concept. What it's called is we compartmentalize our lives, meaning we separate our work lives and home lives or our friends from other friends or anything else that you can think of that you like to keep separate, making sure that they don't spill over. COVID helped to show how important some of these separations can be. With many people working from home, work never seemed to stop. For some people, the compartments we made that separate home and work were broken, and our work lives and home lives spilled into each other. Zoom meetings were interrupted by someone's kid or pet, leading to hours of entertainment on TikTok and YouTube. These awkward interactions illustrate another moment when one part of our lives invades the other. We have all had those awkward moments where two friends from different parts of our lives meet. It's always awkward when you meet someone for the first time and the only thing you have in common with them is another friend. There's this unspoken rule of friendship. I call it the noun of friendship. It's the place you have in common, the person you have in common, the activity you have in common, and a thing you have in common. If you have these four things in common, you will have enough to talk about for not to be awkward and for you two to become friends. If it's one thing I know that we like to keep separate from the rest of our lives, it is church. We like to make sure we don't make the mistake of pushing our religion on someone, We have worked so hard to make sure that our beliefs are put into an airtight container, making sure that nothing escapes. Sometimes we have left it in the back of the fridge for so long that it's become molded, and when we open it up, it stinks. So we toss it out. And if you're like me, you just toss out the whole container. If you never open up and test out your beliefs outside of church, at worst, they will be forgotten and eventually tossed out. The beautiful thing about our thoughts and beliefs is that if we tend to them, they can be refined and become stronger when tested and worked out in real life. If they aren't, when we open up about them, they will be outdated. They'll stink. They will have been left in the back of our minds, never being refined. We have left our morality at church and truly lived out the phrase found in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have done such a good job of separation that nowadays in our society, morality has become subjective. 
Morality is now in the eyes of the beholder. There is one problem with this idea. No moral basis can or should be subjective. There must be a lawgiver and a standard believed by all living within the society. Without a common standard, we live in a society that is based on fear. This fear permeates everything in life. Instead of just loving our kids, our fear is that we will be seen as a bad parent because the standard of a good parent is in the eyes of the beholder and not agreed upon by society as a whole. We strive to appease what is loudest in our society rather than what is right. In the time of Judges in the Old Testament, fear rules the people of Israel. There is a cycle that continued to happen to the people of Israel. They, listening to the loud voice of society telling them to worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth, Uh, as this was predicted by an angel of the Lord speaking on God's behalf in Judges 2, 1-3. I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Say, so now I say, I will drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It says that the gods of the land they were living in would be snares to the people of Israel, meaning that they would never be able to fully worship God because they didn't obey God on the front end when he commanded them to tear down the altars. This was the root of the cycle Israel got caught into in the time of the judges. They would be oppressed and fearful within the society they lived in. They would cry out to the Lord. God would rise up a judge and they would free Israel from oppression. They would live under the judge for a little while and then the judge might pass away or fall out of uh, goodness with God. And then the people would listen to the loud voices of the society around them and become ensnared again by the gods of the people of the society. Just like it was prophesied, they would once again worship Baal and the other gods. Like today, where the loudest voices tell us what to think, what to believe, rather than what is right. We, like the Israelites, have tried our best to silence God, putting him into an airtight container and pushing him all the way to the back of the fridge, eventually tossing out our belief in him, confusing it for moldy and outdated food. The people of Israel eventually got tired of this cycle and cry out, not for salvation, but for a king. Let me set the scene. Samuel, one of the last prophets, last judge in Israel, has been doing his thing for a while now. He has made his sons judges, but they don't follow the Lord's commandments, and they took bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel come to Samuel and demand a king. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 8, 4-7. through Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel Raham, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us 
like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God says that the people of Israel have rejected him from being king over them. As it goes on in 1 Samuel 8, 8 through 9, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God tells Samuel to warn them about what it means to have a king over them. Samuel warns them, as it says in 1 Samuel 8, 10-18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of a thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Even with this warning, the people of Israel still want a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, 19-22, it says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city.
driven by social pressure and fear, the people of Israel still want a king. Wanting someone to fight their battles and to be like the rest of the nations surrounding them, they demand Samuel to anoint a king. What is even more disconcerting is that they don't even want a say in who their king is. To us in the United States, this is foreign. The only redeeming part of anything going on here is that they want God, through Samuel, to choose their king. To the Israelites' credit, they understood that you will always be governed by something or someone. They have been going back repeatedly to the idols of the land, yearning to be subject to what is seen rather than God that cannot be seen but only felt. They suffered from the same thing that happened to the Israelites in the desert, having survived the exodus from Egypt. Moses is up on the mountain, communing with God, and receiving the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel, having no relationship with God, have lost their intermediary, Moses. He was on the mountain for 40 days, and the people of Israel jumped to the conclusion that Moses is dead. I can see why they would jump to that conclusion, but what they do next is something I can't get behind. They are needing a way to commune with God. So they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them an idol. So Aaron gathers all of the gold the people have, and a golden calf just pops up out of the fire. This isn't exactly what it says, but it's pretty darn close to the excuse Aaron gives Moses when he comes down from the mountain. You can read it for yourself in Exodus 32. God isn't very happy with the people of Israel, and Moses does his job and intercedes on behalf of the people. He reminds God of the promise that he made to the people of Israel. God agrees to only take out the people who have sinned against him, excluding Aaron. Then tells Moses to go down and wrangle the people and get them back in line. In the time of the Exodus, Moses was the intermediary between the people of Israel and God. During the time of the book of Judges, the judges of Israel were the intermediaries. Eventually, the judge would die, and the people, having no relationship with God themselves, would fall back onto the idols of society they lived in. I'm sure that God did not want to use judges, but the people having no relationship needed an intermediary to keep them in arm's reach. When Israel asked Samuel for a king instead of asking God to rule over them, what they're saying is that they no longer want to develop a relationship with God. We don't want to have to work to commune with God through sacrifice and consistent following of the word. They said they wanted a king to judge them and go out and fight their battles. A judge wasn't how we define it as today. Today, a judge's job is to interpret the law. Back in the time of the Israelites, a judge was the lawmaker. What God warns the people of Israel is that instead of them getting a permanent judge, is that they would instead have a ruler someone that has complete dominion or ownership over them, something that only God should have over you. 
this might seem like it really doesn't matter because God uses people to communicate and pass down his judgments. The problem is, is that God had the freedom to choose who and when they spoke up. Now there was a permanent family or lineage that would rule. I'm not saying that God couldn't raise up another family, but now there was a clear distinction. The people of Israel didn't want God to rule over them. People have free will, and though the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, eventually, sometimes over the generations, the apple can slowly move away from the original tree. This is how we get groves and long-spanning forests. Think about it. If you've ever come up to a natural forest, not man-made, you will see the smaller, younger trees at the edge of the forest. Because this can happen, and has happened in the past, God needs the ability to raise someone else to be over the people at the time in Israel's history. When you have one lineage that everyone listens to, if that lineage becomes corrupted, so do the people following them. This happens to the line of David. His grandkids eventually fall away from God, so do the people of Israel. You will always be governed or influenced by someone. God will make you choose who you are governed by. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should rebel and revolt against the government or anything like that. When Jesus was asked this type of question to get him in trouble with the Roman government, he asked for a denarii or a Roman coin. He then asked his own question, whose likeness is on the coin? They answered Caesar. Jesus then responds with this answer to his question, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So by that logic, we should be good citizens of the nation we live in. Now, this isn't to say we should just be quiet and never speak up for what is right. On the contrary, the role of government is not to set the morals of society or grant freedoms to, the, to those who are governed. Rather, it is supposed to be a protector of morals and the freedoms of the governed. The idea that we are to completely separate what we believe on Sunday to what we do the rest of the week alienates who we are in Christ. At the end of the day, we must look at ourselves in the mirror and ask whose likeness are we made in? Whose image are we made in? We are made in the image of God. So, we should render unto God what is God's. Meaning, we should live our lives under God's rule. Here's the thing. No matter if you believe in him or not, he is our ruler, our king. But on this side of heaven, he gives you the choice to follow him or not. Because true love is a choice to love in the first place. God gives us this choice and never forsakes you or forgets about you. He always loves you and wants a relationship with you. Just as he did for the Israelites, he is constantly pursuing you. Even as we forget about him, his steadfast love is shown through all the years Israel separated itself from God. You may ask, why didn't God just send Jesus? I think that if he would sent Jesus earlier, the people's hearts and attitudes toward God wasn't right. If you notice, the people of Israel are constantly running back to the idols of the day. 
In the time of Jesus, Israel is no longer running back to those idols. They are more. They have more of a personal relationship with God. In the time of Jesus, synagogues have been established, setting the scene for life without the temple. Synagogues were also a template for the early church. Jesus is the culmination of all the righteous followers of God. They were the shadows of what was to come. The long shadow casted by Jesus throughout the years before, during, and after the kingdom of Israel was established. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whether you believe it or not, he has dominion over your eternity. Though unlike the rulers on this side of heaven, he gives you the choice to be under his rule. If you would like to make that choice today, you can say this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you said in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 that if I would confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I would be saved. Today, I'm doing that. I confess that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. In your name, I pray. Amen. If you did that today, let me know. Uh, visit the 70... Visit... If you did that today, let me know. Visit 72podcast.com and fill out the form on the homepage. So what do we learn today? We live our lives in compartments. If we take God and compartmentalize him, he can be tossed into the back of the fridge and eventually forgotten. The same thing can happen to our ideas about faith. If we never test out these ideas and allow them to be refined, when we revisit them or open up the container after being in the fridge, they will stink. Our morality should not just stay at church. If our lives don't reflect who we are at church, then we need to take a look in the mirror and answer the question, whose likeness am I made into? God has dominion over our eternity, but allows us to choose whose dominion over us on this side of heaven. Will you allow yourself to be ruled by fear or what is right in your own eyes? Government is supposed to protect morals and freedoms, not set the moral standard or grant freedoms. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your steadfast love that is not bound to time or even what we may say or do. Align our hearts with yours, giving us the wisdom and ability to stand up for what is right. Guide us to reflect who you are, drawing others to you. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you once again for listening to the 72 Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming uh, episodes. Write a review. It helps build our reputation. And I'll see you next time on the 72 Podcast. God bless.